Hey everybody, and welcome to the Five Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast is always brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. Also by Liquidware, creators of FlexApp, the most feature-rich application layering product on the market. And brought to you by PolicyPack Software, where you can use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware. It's a pretty packed show this week of news, so let's get into it. First up, it seems like it's been a long time coming. Windows Virtual Desktop is now generally available. Microsoft State Windows Virtual Desktop is the only service that delivers simplified management, a multi-session Windows 10 experience, optimizations for Office 365 Pro Plus, and support for Windows Server Remote Desktop Services, desktops, and apps. With WVD, you can deploy and scale your Windows desktops and apps on Azure in minutes. I think this has been building pretty much since RDMI was discussed at Ignite a few years ago, and that evolved to what is WVD today. And it's also part of the reason for them acquiring FSLogix. I'm sure that's what they talk about when they suggest optimizations for Office 365 Pro Plus. WVD seems to also be a catalyst for the upcoming App Attach product, which shows a whole lot of promise. I posted an opinion piece on WVD based on my experience through several weeks of trying it out in the public preview stage. If you're curious about WVD and what it can mean from like an application perspective, application delivery, end user experience, and so forth, I suggest you check out my blog post. Also, if you haven't tried WVD yet for yourself and you're interested in trying, the easiest way to do that, in my opinion, is to follow my blog for simple setup steps by using a free trial of Cloud Jumper to automate most of the setup. It saves you having to like jump in and out of PowerShell, the Azure portal itself, into the RD web URLs. It's just a simplified streamlined setup and they help you to enable certain WVD features that require some manual intervention otherwise. Speaking of WVD, ControlUp promoted the fact they are a partner. For monitoring and support framework needs, it looks like they'll be a really good option. The list of partners for WVD right now includes Citrix, VMware, CloudJumper, who I mentioned previously, ControlUp, Lakeside Software, Liquidware, Nerdio, ThinPrint, WorkSpot, and Next Steps. FS Logics version 1909 has also been released with a huge list of fixes and a warning. They warn when using cloud cache with 1909, all clients in the environment must be updated to 1909 or later as 1909 may not be used simultaneously with earlier releases. While I've worked with and tried FS Logics profile containers, I have yet to try cloud cache. But for those who are actively using it, make sure to update on the client side. On the topic of FSLogix, Randy Cook tweeted something pretty interesting this week. He said they will be documenting the HKLM system current control set control terminal server rail run once 
registry entry, primarily for use in getting OneDrive running in a remote app scenario, but it's also apparently useful for other things as well. If you work in virtualization, this could be pretty interesting, so I'll be interested myself to see what they find and what they post about this, so watch this space. Microsoft have released some training courses for WVD. If you'd like to dive in and try those out for yourself, I will provide a link for these with this episode, which is episode 92 on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links. And reverting back to one of the top stories last week, did you patch against the IE vulnerability I mentioned on last week's episode yet? If not, you definitely should. My buddy Steve Greenberg tweeted that one of his customers got attacked through that vulnerability. Microsoft released the patch out of band, meaning you really should pay attention and get it done right now. If you haven't yet, there is some information you'll need. The patch is not available in WSUS. For my servers, I ended up manually patching, as I didn't have all that many to patch. But Anoop Nair posted a great blog post on how to get the required patches, import them into SCCM, and deploy that way. Cisco have warned of vulnerabilities of their own. Over a dozen, in fact. Mind you, they claim they are high severity, but none of them are critical, as, as remote admin access is not possible. The vulnerabilities are in the widely deployed Cisco iOS and iOS EXE network automation software, including a nasty one affecting its industrial routers and grid routers. While they appear to provide patches, for one of the vulnerabilities it looks like they are recommending a configuration change, namely that the L2 or level 2 traceroute feature should be disabled. This is because it doesn't require authentication and allows an attacker to collect a whole lot of information about an affected device, including the hostname, hardware model, configured interfaces and IP addresses, VLAN database, MAC address table, layer 2 filtering table, and Cisco discovery protocol neighbor information. So they're saying high severity, but really, to me, that is a critical issue. Sure, they might not be able to get admin access into your environment through the vulnerability directly, but they can get a whole lot of information that they could use to maybe try getting that admin access a different route. So you'll want to patch and probably disable that layer 2 trace route. Multiple denial-of-service vulnerabilities have been identified in Citrix license server for Windows and VPX that, when exploited, could result in an attacker being able to force the vendor service to shut down. This vulnerability affects the following Citrix license server versions. Citrix license server for Windows earlier than and including 11.15.0.0 build 27,000. Citrix license server VPX, all supported versions. Citrix license server for Windows version 11.16.3 build 28,000 and newer. Customers with Citrix license server VPX will need to deploy the Windows version for the fix. Citrix recommends that customers upgrade their Citrix license server deployments to this version or later. Windows version 19.09 is set to release very soon. With it, comes better support for Amazon Alexa, the ability to create calendar events from the taskbar, tweaks to how the start menu launches, tweaks to notification options, apparent improved battery efficiency, and 
File Explorer has been updated with Windows Search integration, and traditional index results will now also include your OneDrive content. BleepingComputer.com also reported that if the processor powering your PC supports favored cores, users will notice performance improvements as Microsoft has implemented a new rotation policy that will send more CPU-intensive or critical tasks to those cores that operate faster. So if you're one of those lucky people whose PC does support favored cores, it sounds like this version is definitely one you're going to want to try because it could lead to improved performance. Google's Chrome OS version 77 is on its way. One of the cool looking features is called Virtual Desks, which allows users to group their apps and windows into logical or topical desktops rather than filling a single screen to the point it just can't be filled up anymore, or at least usable. Chrome OS version 77 also allowed some parental control options in the form of bonus time for Family Link, awarding good kids with some extra moments with their Chromebook. It's pretty interesting. Slashgear.com also report that the digital assistant will become available more widespread with this release and users can expect some tweaks for navigation and workflows too. It has been reported by ZDNet that Docker may be in financial difficulties with the leaked memo from the CEO praising workers despite the, quote, uncertainty, which brings with it significant challenges. The memo also states, quote, we've been engaging with investors to secure more financing to continue to execute on our strategy. I wanted to share a quick update on where we stand. We are currently in active negotiations with two investors and are working through final terms. We should be able to provide you a more complete update within the next couple of weeks." End quote. The article goes on to suggest that some of its large investors are growing frustrated that Docker has yet to turn a profit and is not close to an IPO. It also suggests they haven't really found a business plan yet and that the success of Kubernetes may have taken some of the wind out of their sails. Personally, I hope Docker does get more funding and kicks out of this period of uncertainty. ZDNet also reports one of the most significant losses caused by a cybersecurity incident ever. Dement, one of the leading manufacturers of hearing aids in the world, allegedly got hit with ransomware and they expect to incur losses between 80 to 95 million dollars. The company has not stated it is ransomware and instead refer to it as cybercrime. The figure for the costs was provided by the company to its investors. It's reported the cost of recovery and infrastructure was about $7.3 million. The big losses were incurred from loss of sale due to the inability to process orders. This incident occurred weeks ago and recovery is still ongoing. Ars Technica has reported that Ten hospitals, seven in Australia and three in Alabama, have been infected with ransomware, with the hospitals in Alabama actually instructing ambulances to go to other hospitals and transferring patients once stabilized to other facilities. In Alabama, the hospitals have implemented emergency procedures to ensure safe and efficient operations in the event technology dependent on computers is not available. So most hospitals tend to have a downtime procedure, so it sounds like they kicked into that. 
At the time of the recording, what is being used for the attack is not known, and no ransom amount has been requested yet. In Australia, they estimate it could take weeks to fully recover. And at this time, there is no indication that the attacks in Alabama and Australia are related. So next year on the podcast, I might start a jackass of the week type of segment because there are so many stories like this next one. ZDNet reports this week a system engineer was found guilty of destroying critical U.S. Army network resources. The man in question was a federal contractor tasked with looking after U.S. Army chaplain corps networks, including financial applications and training systems. And not to get political, but when I moved to the States, I couldn't believe that there were churches who had their own huge IT infrastructure and were paying companies for support for IT needs. I guess Ireland and its churches maybe operate very differently (laughs) to the United States, but that was an eye-opener, and it seems like the Chaplin Corps Networks was the one that was affected here. It's reported in this instance the man was tipped off that his contract was going to be terminated. While still employed, he started to probe the AWS-hosted network and continued doing so after he was terminated. He eventually went on a bit of a spree. He contacted GoDaddy and switched registrant data for the chaplaincorps.net domain to Anthony Enterprises. Bad move, put in your own name, buddy. Which disrupted training classes that were taking place and caused loss of productivity and obviously time equals money. After making sure he had sole access to the Army network, Anthony then unlawfully shared proprietary information belonging to Federated IT and went on a file deletion spree. Downloaded data included AWS service account information and network diagrams. Backup system images known as Amazon machine images were also downloaded and shared. This information has been given an estimated value of over $1 million by the engineer's former company. After termination, it stated that Anthony was linked to the full wipe of a test server belonging to the U.S. Army web application system And as there were no backups, the system had to be rebuilt from scratch. Prosecutors said there is probable cause that the engineer sent the data deleting command, given he was the one with sole access at the time. I mean, 2 plus 2 equals 4. A total of 37,439 brute force attacks were also attributed to this Anthony fellow. He has been sentenced in the United States and will spend the next two years in prison. The Windows Insider program turned five this week. If you're not in it, you should consider it for at least one or two machines in your home lab. It's cool getting to test some of the new features early on. Something fun I saw this week on Twitter was from Ian Dixon, who shared a screenshot of snapshots in his Hyper-V host. He stated he started with Windows NT version 3.51, and upgraded it all the way through to Windows 10. A few versions of the Windows operating system were skipped along the way, but by the looks of things, it's pretty cool nonetheless. If you want to see that screenshot for yourself, I'll share a link to the tweet under reference links, or you could just watch the YouTube version of this episode. My friends at the Frontline Chatter podcast released a new episode this week. They interviewed Simon Townsend, Chief Marketing Officer for the EMEA for iGel. iGel are doing some really cool things. 
They've also been on point with their marketing with some insane giveaways. So it's interesting to hear Simon, who's now part of iGel and on the marketing team, discuss iGel and their products. And now the weekly webinar. Goliath will be hosting a webinar titled to Deliver Proactive Health IT. And the moderator is going to be Scott Osborne, who's the Omaha CUGC leader and one of my fellow CTPs. If anyone knows healthcare IT, it's Scott Osborne. So he should be able to have some pretty interesting insights as moderator and probably help answer some questions that you have. So if you work in healthcare IT and you just want to discuss things and ask questions, this is a perfect opportunity for you. They plan to cover how to reduce EHR slowness, how to lessen support tickets and logon times, quickly pinpoint and troubleshoot the root cause, and improve the clinician user experience and patient care. If you're not familiar with Goliath, they sponsor like big EHRs like Epic, Cerner, Allscripts, Meditech, and more. So they cover pretty much most of the hospital base when it comes to EHRs. The podcast is going to be held in a few hours' time if you're listening to this as it launches. Uh, it's being held on Wednesday, October 2nd at 6 p.m. BST to 7 p.m. BST, which is 1 p.m. Eastern for our U.S. listeners. And now this episode, Scripts, Tricks, and Tips. The excellent Guy Leach, who probably shares more PowerShell scripts related to end-user computing, virtualization, and just everything that I'm interested in, has shared yet again another interesting fact and some useful scripts. So did you know, when you download on Windows 10, the zone.identifier information for downloaded files, which is stored in NTFS alternate data streams, or ADS, on each downloaded file contains the URL from which the file came. Guy has shared PowerShell script which finds files with a zone.identifier ADS in a given folder and subfolders if the recurse option is used. And the script then outputs the data found so you can pipe it through commandlets like export-csv or out-gridview. It makes it nice and readable. So you could obviously use this for some nefarious purposes and monitoring download activity of some of your user base which I'm not saying you should do that. And I'm sure a guy doesn't intend for it to be used that way, but it could be used that way. But it's interesting nonetheless. I was not aware that this information was so readily available. And definitely come in handy. I know I have a tendency to leave a lot of things just sitting in my downloads. And I might come back to something, like something that I featured on this podcast, for example. And I'm like, oh, yeah, where did I get this download from? Because I maybe want to feature it on my wrap-up show like I did at the end of year last year. Rather than having to go through 52 episodes worth of links to find the download link that I shared, I could just look through my downloads, run this script, and find the URL in question so I could share it again. So thank you, Guy, for sharing that. And thanks to everyone who's listening. If you like the podcast each week, please take a moment to rate the podcast on your podcast platform of choice if you would be so kind and even just tell your friends or colleagues about it that's it for another week thank you all so much for listening